You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prowl and Boudreaux Boswell. So we have a couple seasonal updates. I know some of you southern guys have been hunting turkeys for a good while already this spring, but up in my neck of the woods, turkey hunting has only just opened up on the 18th of April. I shot a Tom on opening morning. You can find the video on the DIY Sportsman YouTube channel if you haven't seen it, but Bobby and I are going to go a little behind the scenes today to discuss some of the strategy and luck involved in more detail. Another fun spring activity that Minnesotans have to look forward to is sturgeon fishing on the Rainy River, which is located right along the Canadian border between Lake of the Woods and Rainy Lake. Giant sturgeons swim upriver by the thousands for their spring spawning run, so we'll talk a little about that first. It was definitely colder than normal, not only because the spring has been so late, but also we managed to once again hit a cold front (laughs) right square when we went up there. So in the days leading up to that trip to fish for sturgeon, you know, most people that we knew that were up there were catching like 10 fish a day. And then as soon as we got up there, it was the first day high of 42 degrees, st- you know, steady 20 mile an hour winds. And you're completely unprotected on that river. So you got two foot white caps on some areas of the river and you're pretty much picking your fishing spot based on where there's a little bit of protection from the wind. And I mean, we were sitting <laughs> in an area that we could see probably like 70 boats and we only saw one fish other than the one we caught that whole day. It was slow. Man. Water temp was only like 39 degrees. Yeah, I bet you were definitely hiding from the wind. Yeah. Well, one of the days we went up river to a normal hot spot for us. And the boat launch there, as soon as we pulled up, we were like, oh, there's no trucks here. And we drive down to the end of the launch and it's just completely packed in with icebergs and trees and sticks and debris. We actually had to like back the truck into the river just part way and then basically take a stick and start pushing icebergs out of the way so we could get enough space to back the boat into the river. It's crazy that you have that much ice this late in the year. I say that we got, it snowed a little bit here today. Um, that's, I guess it's about May. So got a little bit of snow, but it's not that cold. I mean, it was 70, 77 one day and 86 the next day and then we had snow today but it's just crazy there's that much ice up there yeah i mean the rivers are totally open it's just cold water i mean it's it was like right. 41 degrees by the time we left because it you know gradually gotten warmer and warmer every day of our trip and the fishing got kind of better and better each day as well and most of the ice was just from like creeks and rivers that were still kind of blocked up and they finally released you know those kind of feeder creeks and then once that gets into the river then it obviously floats down and dams up along areas of the shoreline but by the time we left it was pretty open for the most part not as much debris floating down the river man yeah it looked like how big was that sturgeon that you caught uh the one i caught was 49 and a half that one we capped uh the way that sturgeon fishing works up there on the rainy river it's basically you got all these fish that live in lake of the woods and they come up the rainy river towards rainy lake to spawn and essentially the way that the DNR has it worked out is it's mostly catch and release 
except that you can buy a sturgeon tag that's good for one sturgeon per person per year. It's a $5 tag. And that sturgeon has to be between 45 and 50 inches or over 75. But to be honest, I don't know if I've ever heard of a sturgeon over 75 inches being caught out of that river. And if there was one caught, it would be a easy state record. So they pretty much made it as like a, you know, like a trophy type of fish. Like most fish that are kept are between that 45 and 50, which was like the one that we caught. And, right. uh, in the past, you know, we'd kind of always done like the catch and release fishing just in general up there. Cause you don't really know necessarily how to eat sturgeon or, you know, what best ways to cook them. Do they even taste good? Last year, a couple of the guys that we went with smoked one of them and they said it was just so phenomenal. So this year everybody bought tags and I ended up catching <laughs> the only fish that was within that slot. All the other ones we caught were, you know, either above 50 or below 45. So we basically just, after we caught that fish, you know, we tied it up to the side of the boat and fished for a little bit longer. And then once we kind of got past the cabin that we were staying at in the river, we just pulled up to shore, uh, basically, you know, cut the gills and then threw the sturgeon up in a snow bank and covered it in snow. So that by the time we were done fishing and we got back to the cabin, it was basically all bled out and still like on ice. So that was really nice and easy to fillet and clean up. And we got so much meat off that fish. It's insane. Like way, way more meat on a sturgeon, 45 to 50 inches than there is on a wild turkey for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of some people that's been sturgeon. That's a fishing. That's a pretty small slot. I mean, it's five inches. Uh, yeah, you know, I wonder kind of what the, the age bracket, you know, how old is that particular yeah, we, fish we looked that it up falls at, within that I five inch? I think they're around, uh, my memory serves me right. I think they're around like 15 to 20 years old, somewhere in that ballpark. I could be wrong, man. Yeah. They're pretty did old. You save the skin off of it. I did not save the skin. Oh, come on, man. They make a real good bow backing, like for self bows and stuff. Well, the next time I catch one, actually, I, <laughs> technically I do have the skin because when we filleted the fish, we didn't skin it. We just kept the skin on the back of the fish, but it's cut into, you right. know, foot long chunks. So that's right. really helpful. Yeah. yeah. That does it. That doesn't help when you're trying to put on a 58 or 60 inch bow. <laughs> right. So. right. And sew it together first. Yeah. But it should turn out well. I kept probably a third of the fish for myself. I'm going to try and smoke it. And then my buddy's dad is going to smoke the rest of it and kind of share it with the rest of the group. So I guess we'll find out how good it actually is. I kept the eggs too. It was a female. And I wasn't exactly sure, you know, if the caviar from a lake sturgeon is, you know, edible. If it's, you know, kind of like a specialty delicacy type thing and what kind of work is involved. The eggs are super small. It's not like the caviar that you think of when you think of caviar. So, right. and it's not the color of caviar that you would think of. It's not like dark or black. It's like orange or yellow, kind of like most fish you would typically think of. Um, so I might look into seeing if that's viable at all. And if not, I'll probably just get rid of it and eat the meat. So is smoking it the only way you're going to, you're going to keep it or are that's, you going to try a couple different ways? You know, I'm not sure yet. I got enough that I can probably at least cut off like a steak, uh, and maybe like pan sear it or something. I guess you being a freshwater fish, you probably got to cook it, uh, to like a well done just to get rid of all the parasites and whatnot. But, uh, the only other time I've eaten sturgeon was when my dad speared one on Lake Winnebago a few years back when I was in college. And that one was 73 inches, 125 pounds. And I tried cooking it like I would cook, you know, a piece of chicken breast in the pan and it turned out like shoe leather. It was really tough. <laughs> so <laughs> if I'm going to do it again, I'll probably brine it first and then uh, 
I don't know if I'd slow cook it. I mean, this fish is obviously a lot smaller, so the meat should be more tender regardless, but then I'll probably do like some kind of uh, pan cooking, but I think smoking it will likely be the way to go. It's kind of interesting. Actually, the way that it filleted up was very similar to like a burbot. They have, uh, you know, two big long fillets along the entire length of the fish and then the belly meat, you can basically cut off and that belly meat was well over an inch thick. So there's a lot wow. of meat that you wouldn't get off of like a game fish, like a walleye. Yeah. I think some big catfish, you can get some belly fillets off of, but they're not an inch thick. They're a little smaller than that. Yeah. Yeah. It was surprising how much meat was on that thing. I mean, literally an entire refrigerator tray full of meat, two inches thick. Wow. It, yeah, it'd have been interesting to know, you know, how many pounds of meat, what percentage of meat you got off of yeah, that. I would have liked to know. We didn't really have a scale up there with us. Most of the time when we, right. when we weigh those fish, it's kind of an estimate based on the girth and the length. Yeah. Yeah, that girth measurement for a lot of things can actually come in handy, especially for things like that where you may not have a scale that goes that high. You know, done a lot of it for some pigs. Um, you can do kind of the same thing as measure the girth of the pig, kind of right behind the the front legs, kind of over the heart. They call it the heart girth measurement, I think. And they've got a a scale for you know it comes out so many inches, it weighs about this many pounds. And there was a big study done on it, and they came out with some some pretty accurate numbers for it as well. So that's a really good accurate measuring system for some things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the way that a lot of people have measured like muskies and stuff too, to get an estimate. In fact, the state of Minnesota, I don't know how many other states do this. They have implemented for certain species of fish, a state record based on length, as opposed to just the state record based on weight. Cause essentially to get a state record based on weight, you got to kill the fish because some DNR officer has to confirm either by, I don't know if they do it genetically or if he just looks at it and says, yeah, that's, you know, this kind of fish. Uh, but essentially you got to be able to turn the fish in to get that, your name on that weight record. But for certain fish like sturgeon, where you're pretty much never going to catch a 75 inch sturgeon on the rainy river, just cause I don't think really they get all that big. Um, not like they do in like some other areas like Wisconsin, they get a lot bigger on the Winnebago chain. I think they just tagged a, a 79 incher like a couple days ago. But, um, yeah, for the most part and like muskies too. Uh, cause a lot of guys that fish for muskies just do it for the sport and it's all catch and release. They don't actually keep a lot of those fish. And if they do catch a giant, they don't want to kill it. They want to get it back in the water as fast as possible. Take some photos and maybe get a replica made. So having a length measurement system, and there's some rules behind that, but you can basically get a length state record. Which makes sense. Cause you think of most fish species, a lot of them are kind of, you know, girth to length proportionate, you know, you can't get like largemouth bass, for example, is one that's not, you know, you can get a largemouth bass that has a big body on it girth wise, but may not, may not be as long. So for that one, weight would probably be more beneficial than a length measurement. Whereas like you see a lot of these, uh, you know, like all these kayak fishermen and all this stuff, they just, you know, most people can measure length because most fish, you know, tend to be the same, about the same girth basically. So it's all based off length. So sturgeon, I'd imagine, would be the same way. You're not going to see a, you know, a 50-inch sturgeon that's as big around as a five-gallon bucket. Right, right. I think you could probably get more variability the bigger up you go. I mean, you see pictures and you catch fish that sometimes it's like, there is some variability there. You can catch a really fat fish versus a really skinny fish, even on the bigger end of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, it tends to be fairly accurate, like you said. And there's actually even, you know, for fishing tournaments 
it used to always be based on weight, but now there's more and more tournament, I guess, uh, setups where they go by a catch and release method. You know, like there's bass tournaments on TV where they'll have a certified guy in the back of the boat and he'll weigh every fish and then they just toss it back into the lake. Um, and then for walleyes, they have some walleye tournaments actually where they, uh, base it on length. You catch a fish, you measure it. So it doesn't matter if they're fat or skinny. It's just based on that length measurement. And then the fish go right back into the, the lake or river just to kind of try and reduce that fish mortality. Cause I mean, some of those tournaments, those guys are running on three, four foot waves for 20, 30 mile runs. And that's pretty rough on the fish in the live well. Yeah, I've seen a lot of like kayak fishing tournaments, especially along the coastal regions. Um, kind of when I was back in Virginia, that's what they did was they would basically have a ruler and they would, when they registered for the tournament, they were given a number and they basically had like GoPros or their phone on a selfie stick and they would lay the fish on the ruler with the num their number mm -hmm. on top of the fish and then they would take the picture. And then that's what counted as their catch, basically, instead of having to bring in the fish. They just took those photos, and that's what they used for what their haul was for the day. Huh. Interesting. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I don't really – because, I mean, for a kayak, it's not like you really have a lot of live well space, and you don't want it to be dragging around a big string or a fish. <laughs> yeah, ex yeah, exactly. Especially coastal regions. Oh. You may have a shark come up and, yeah. and just be dragging a shark around on the end of it. Yeah, I guess I didn't even think of that. I've just thought of all the times where I've, you know, been in a canoe or a kayak, and I got a string or a fish behind me, and it feels like you're dragging a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> especially on those windy days when you're fighting the wind wanting to go into the wind and it's pulling you back <laughs> yeah it's, oh man when we went up to the boundary waters last year i broke one of my paddles swimming or uh, paddling into the wind that was a fun trip back basically turned my kayak paddle into a canoe paddle for a kayak just going in zigzags all the way around everywhere <laughs> yeah i probably Bought a new paddle and replaced that one. I was probably like, yeah, I'm probably not going to buy that one again. I did. And I upgraded quite a bit. I bought a, a pretty expensive yeah. paddle to replace it. It's It always sucks when you have gear that fails in the middle of something, and then you're like, yeah, I need to replace that with a better one now. Well, that's the thing, too. When it fails, it never fails in the ideal moment. You know, it's always because you're in a situation where you really need it to perform when it breaks. And that's why screwed. the best warranty is the one you will never need. <laughs> right. I still haven't seen any uh, harvest photos. Yeah, I, I went out for a day and a half, basically. Um, I was in Missouri for opening day of their season. I was only there Monday and Tuesday. Didn't buy a tag there. Seen a lot of turkeys, uh, but I just didn't buy a tag. And then came back here and hunted that uh, second weekend of Utah season for me anyways because I had the, the early tag. Heard a lot of birds. Um uh, especially you know when i got i drove down there it was kind of raining and snowing um didn't really hear any that night but the next morning i kind of had an idea where they roosted up this canyon um and heard a lot of birds that morning i probably heard 10 or 12 birds um couldn't get anything to to cooperate once they flew down you know probably 7 30 they shut up didn't hear anything after that until about hmm, about two o'clock i got on some birds there was two groups of two birds is what it sounded like. Uh, got on them. They were really hot. Got in close. Sounded like they were coming in, and then somebody cut me off, uh, come off the road, and came in with a box call yelping uh. and walked across the wet meadow probably 40 yards from me. Um, and when he was crossing the meadow, those turkeys gobbled it. 
I would probably say like 80 yards, and then that was the last time I heard him gobble. So I'm guessing he spooked him somehow. Seeing him spooked him. Yeah, probably. Um, that sucks. But never. Yeah, never heard anything from them. But I was surprised at how much the birds were gobbling that afternoon. And then uh, Sunday morning, I hunted till probably 10. And after about 6.45, there wasn't a bird gobbled till 10 o'clock, basically. So pretty slow on my end. What elevation Looked are like, you roughly at for those types uh, of Uh That was, I want to say that was between uh, 52 and 57, basically, is what I was hunting in that area. And do they have, so, I guess, across the state, do they have certain elevation ranges that they like to stay at or is yeah, it pretty much you could find them at any elevation just given the location of the state? No, for the most part, they tend to tend to go towards that elevation, uh, maybe a little bit higher. I'd probably say probably 45 to six would be an easy, that would probably encompass most all of them within the state. Okay. Huh. Yeah. It's pretty, <clears throat> pretty interesting considering, you know, there's, obviously nowhere even near that elevation in a lot of the states that they also call home yeah i mean for me the, the hard part was you know those birds that were gobbling in the afternoon i was like man they're right there and ended up it was like a mile and a quarter that it took me to get into the birds because there was just basically they were i was on one ravine and they were on the or one side of the ravine and they were on the other and I saw I could really hear them gobbling really good. And I thought, crap, they're just like right below me. And then I got below me, and it's like, nope, they're all the way across. So I just had to keep going. What kind of calls were you using? Uh, I use a – I got a hooks um, slate and a some other slate call. I don't even know who makes it. Um, and then for the most part, that's all I use are slate calls. I do have a mouth call. Um, I'm not very proficient with it. So most part just um, – the slates and then i have some call i bought years ago at a a show a sports show it's like a almost it reminds me of like this it's about the size of a skull can yeah but it's like pvc on almost i would say probably like 75 percent of it and then that other 25 percent is basically open and then it's got basically a cedar board epoxy to each side and you it's got like a a two and a half inch or three inch cedar stick basically and you kind of run it's kind of hard to explain i'm doing it with my hands but you guys can't see this unfortunately <laughs> you run it at an angle kind of on there and it kind of acts like a box call basically yeah it's just but a, it's a, a lot certain type of friction call yeah i just hate box calls because they make so much noise when they're in your pack or whatever they're just always making noise but that one you can kind of separate the two parts from it and it doesn't make noise yeah i would imagine and that's out there in that open country where the sound travels a really long ways, I would, I would have to imagine that you could probably get some benefit from like a, a long box or like a, a glass call, something that really has a lot of volume. Yeah. And that's the hard part is you'll get up there and because of kind of the way the hills set and everything, you know, a bird will gobble and like everywhere else, you know, people are pointing different directions but then the bird turns and it echoes out a different way. And so you get really confused really easy on where the bird is at. Um, even though it's so wide open and it, it's open, but most of the habitat is like, um, I'd say like a six to 12 foot kind of scrub oak habitat. 
and then just periodically in those scrub oaks you'll find a you know a 30 by 30 opening basically and so that's where like the onyx maps came in really well was you know i could hear those birds gobbling and i just kept bringing up my onyx maps and i'm just busting brush trying to get to them trying to find an opening that i thought the birds would be in um, and getting as close to that opening but in a opening adjacent to it to be able to call those birds to me sure yeah i have to it's got to be tough i mean we have places like that too where it's you don't have much visibility i guess especially in the late season around here when stuff gets really green you kind of feel like that too where you get some some small openings but it's like for the most part you're you're out and blind and you're pretty much just you know hoping that you can hear something to be able to set up on or make a move yeah it it was it's different um it's unique but it's different well how about you you killed a, a heck of a bird i did uh in an opening morning nonetheless so that was pretty exciting for the first time in quite a while i actually traveled a long ways relatively speaking to hunt turkeys um i've always driven to like wisconsin quite a bit to hunt turkeys and whenever i've hunted them in minnesota it's always been around the metro you know, in some of the national wildlife refuges uh, that we have or in, uh, you know, WMAs, state forests, that type of thing. But there's a guy, he's actually on the, the saddle hunter forum, invited me to come up to his place, uh, his parents' farm to hunt turkeys. And we had looked at, you know, Onyx and found a couple areas of public land or in the surrounding area that we could hit too. The issue that we were kind of running into and for a while we weren't actually sure if we we're going to be able to really pull it off or not was that we had so much snow in the days leading up to the hunt. So there's a big snowstorm that came through most of the upper Midwest, hit Wisconsin really hard, hit Minnesota, you know, through the twin cities Metro pretty hard, hit the Dakotas pretty hard. Um, but it actually stopped at a certain point North. It's so like where his parents' farm was, it was north of where that big snowstorm was. So even though we got like 15, 16 inches of snow where my house was at three days prior to the opener, they didn't get any new snow. They just had the six to eight inches of snow that was already on the ground waiting to melt. So at the time of the opener, they had less snow, so we decided to go up there. We were kind of playing the waiting game of, well, if he has less snow, we'll go up there and hunt on his parents' farm. And if we get less snow down here in the cities, he was going to come drive down and we we're going to hunt some state forest land near where I live, where I've shot a couple of birds. So we ended up going up there and we were driving around the night before, just kind of, I guess, glass in the fields, driving around looking for either tracks or actually birds themselves. And that whole drive around that night before the opener, you know, we only cut a couple tracks uh, when we would get out and walk the field edges. And we only saw like four birds, like a Tom and three hens that entire drive, which was surprising. And I mean, I think for a, at a certain level, those birds are still flocked up. They're obviously starting to break up a little bit, but just the overall numbers of birds in that area compared to what they say they were used to, you know, kind of mid spring, it definitely seemed like the birds hadn't quite filtered into that area very well. We did see a ton of deer. Um, the deer hit the fields this time of year especially with that snow, like none other. I mean, we saw hundreds and hundreds of deer. It was nuts. More deer than I've ever seen in my life driving around that farm country. But, but uh, yeah, not so much for turkeys. So we were kind of nervous going in the next morning and we couldn't get a bird to, to gobble on the roost the night before. We tried a couple different spots. And actually one of the spots that we tried to roost a bird 
ended up being like 150 yards from where there actually was a bird roosted the next morning. So he just was, he didn't make a peep that night before. So fast forward to the next morning, we get on the bird, we could hear him gobbling, set up in a field that was open enough. There was actually some grass showing through. Tried sticking the decoys in the ground, bent the stake. Ground was totally frozen. We laid some of the decoys just on the ice. And it turns out those birds flew down and they went the wrong direction onto some private land that we didn't have any access on. So we just kind of basically waited on the road because that was the only bird that we heard. That was the only one that we really had a, a beat on. So I was like, well, I guess do we just kind of wait around and wait till he gets on some public that we or public or private that we have access on. So that's kind of what we did. And eventually we just kind of gave up on them. So we started driving around and we probably drove 20, 30 miles and maybe saw four turkeys out in fields. Most of the fields are just totally empty. So again, not really all that, you know, much success like we were hoping to see. And, uh, but the birds that we did see were broken up sort of like one or two toms with like five, six hens. And we were literally about to go into town and get like a coffee and like something to eat. Cause we were just, you know, kind of out of ideas for the morning when we happened to drive past a little pine plantation and see a Tom strutting right on the edge of it. And this was a private field that we had permission on. So it was like, okay, let's, uh, let's back up the pines a little bit and let's try and make a sneak on this bird kind of round the corner using like a reaper decoy and see if we can't get his attention and bring him in. So we attempted that, which was, it's incredibly hard trying to get close to those birds with that snow. Cause it was, you know, kind of that melt, thaw, freeze cycle. And that really gets that snow crunchy. So the snow was extremely loud. There was some ice that we're cracking through and we ended up having a hen pick us off right as we kind of rounded that corner. So the birds went right into the pines and these pine trees were only probably, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile long by a quarter mile wide. So not a huge chunk of pines, but we were kind of thinking, you know, we know those birds went into those pines and there's probably a pretty low chance that we can actually get them to respond to us now, but we got nothing to lose at this point. You might as well go up a couple hundred yards, dip into the pines, find some place to sit down and start calling. So that's exactly what we did. And while we were in that pine plantation, we were kind of looking for areas that, you know, give us some kind of an advantage train wise. Cause a lot of those pines you can see, you know, on the ground level, quite a ways standing up. You can't see that far, but ground level, it's pretty open. And we ended up finding a place that had a lot of tall grass, you know, kind of some snow mounds, tall grass, something you couldn't see past. It gave us like a, basically a block uh, that the birds couldn't see. So we set up right behind that thinking that in the odd chance that any birds did happen to come in, they would have to walk around that to be able to see us. And so we set up and started calling and it was probably like close to 10 minutes before we started to faintly hear a hen yelping and we started calling to the hen just kind of some long strings of yelps, uh, to begin with. And then, you know, we could hear her barking right back, real raspy, long strings of yelps. to so start cutting at her, um, and just giving some longer sequences. And sure enough, every time we'd call, it wouldn't be three, four five seconds before that hen would start yelping back at us. And so we just kept that going for probably five, six minutes. And we could hear the hen getting closer and closer, just kind of hoping that the hen obviously would have a gobbler with her. And eventually we got to the point where we could see the hen walking through the pines coming around that grass, probably 35, 40 yards. 
And so at that point we shut up because we knew that if we called again, that hen would have us totally pinned and we didn't have any decoys out. So we just sat there and waited and it was a legit, like looking at the camera footage, like 10 minutes of total silence. And then we started hearing drumming and it sounded so close and we just couldn't see where this bird was. And then all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see some movement and I look into the grass and this bird's in full strut, not 15 yards away from me. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> He's right there. And I was, my gun was still on my lap yet. And uh, I didn't want to call or, or do anything. I didn't want to move. I was just like, well, I got to wait for this bird to do something, put his fan up, spin around, so at least get the gun up. I was hoping he would kind of keep moving out of that grass so that he could come right out into the open and give us an easy shot and good footage. But so it, was the hen... Was the hen still around? She was still right there. This time? She oh, okay. she was in that she honestly did not move more than three feet for that whole ten minutes. She wow. just you couldn't really hear it while we were sitting there that well. But when I listened to the footage back, you could hear her start purring, doing some little soft clucks. Um so she was fairly content. She wasn't alert by any means. And that bird or that, that Tom, you know, he was kinda in and out of strut, drumming, spinning around, spitting. And, uh, eventually he turned around and started kind of facing the direction that he came from back in those pines and out the other edge of that grass. And so we were afraid that those birds had kind of hit the wall where they expected to see some birds and they weren't seeing anything. The hen had stopped moving and everything had gotten quiet. So we were afraid that they were going to just kind of head back where they came from. So I'm thinking as soon as that bird gives me an opportunity, I'm going to raise my gun and try and get a shot off. Um, cause that grass was pretty dry. It was not very strong. I was pretty confident that I'd be able to shoot through it at that range. And so he had his fan down and I waited for him to turn. He's basically 180 degrees facing straight away from me and I'm thinking, well, if he doesn't have his fan, this is the best opportunity that I got. So that was when I raised my gun and I turned the safety off and I could just see right behind the Tom, a little black blob, a little hen moving behind him. So I wait for her to clear out. And then he kind of slowly picked his head up higher, higher, higher. And I could see enough of his head through that grass. And I was like, I know a lot of that pattern is going to hit the bird. And then I pulled the trigger and he just dropped and started flopping. Ran and picked him up. And you can see in the video, the big, just a huge chunk of grass just got totally cleaned out when I took that <laughs> shot and that bird dropped. It ended up being, well, the, the thing about it for me, this was an exciting hunt and kind of a breakthrough hunt for me. Because in the past, a lot of the turkeys that I've shot have been more towards the woodsmanship side of things and less toward the calling. You know, you could, you could throw turkey on, you know, the sliding scale of woodsmanship versus, I guess, a triangle woodsmanship versus calling versus luck, you know. And in the past, it's always kind of been on the woodsmanship slash luck side of things and less on the calling. And I always kind of set up so that I would do my scouting and being in a location where I would give myself the least opportunity possible to screw it up with calling. It's like, if I can get the birds to walk by me as if it was a deer hunt and I don't have to make a peep and don't have the opportunity to screw it up. That's my best chance of getting a bird. That's how I shot a lot of my birds in the past was just being, putting myself in the right place at the right time for those birds to come in with minimal calling. Um, and this time was totally the opposite where, yeah, there might've been, a little bit of strategy and where exactly we set up, but I probably, I don't even remember how many times I must've yelped 50, 60 times and, you know, caught a bunch 
over that entire sequence of that, you know, 10 minute span or whatever. And that was by far the most I've ever called on a turkey hunt. And it was with a mouth call, which historically a mouth call for me has always been kind of my weak link. You know, I can get the, the yelps and the cuts occasionally, but every, it would always be mixed in with some calls. I didn't think sounded that great. So I'd always kind of leave it as a last resort. And this time it was kind of the main feature. So it was really kind of a breakthrough hunt for me. Yeah, it's, you took an interesting strategy of, you know, you took the gamble of calling to the hen to see if, you know, if the Tom was still with her, you know, I think that's the interesting thing about turkey hunting is it's not necessarily just calling to the Tom, but there's also the strategy of calling hens in and, you know, hoping that they came in. Right. Well, and Shane talked about that when we had him on the podcast too. Exactly. And when we had hunted together, he did almost that exact same thing. And he called some birds across a canyon to get to our setup. And the amount of calling that he did and the intensity and the aggressiveness that he called and was able to get that hen to respond and bring over three, four or five birds or whatever it was, was something that I had never seen on TV. It was something I never experienced before. So it was a totally new method or strategy that I was exposed to. And so basically I just tried to mimic that hen as much as I could, except I was even a little bit more aggressive because uh, she didn't really cut all that much. She was really aggressive in the yelping, but she would kind of cluck in between the yelps, whereas I was cutting in between the yelps. So I was a little bit more aggressive than she was. But despite that, she was always responding. So I just kind of kept doing what I was doing. And I think w- when you call to a hen, you can be a little bit more aggressive than if you're trying to call to a tom, you know, because you're trying to get that fired up, come over and pick a fight with me instinct in her compared to the tom. You know, the Tom, you're trying to seduce him basically in the hen. You're trying to piss her off. Right. And well, the other thing is too, we were fairly confident based on the birds that we had seen thus far that that time of morning, any Tom is most likely going to have hens with them. And good luck pulling those Toms away from the hens. You know, it's kind of like, well, we hear a hen, there's a decent chance there's a Tom there too. Um, And for the most part, we're not going to be able to call the Tom away from the hen. So calling to the hens, basically like a last ditch effort. We got nothing to lose at this point. Might as well try it. Yeah. I got a family member back in Missouri that went out on Saturday and between daylight, he was hunting from a blind with a bow and from daylight to like 11, 15, obviously probably some of it was the same hen, but he had a hen or multiple hens come in up to he counted 13 different times and never a singer gobbler. <laughs> he was like, how is this possible? My luck is running out. So sometimes it doesn't work. But in your case, you know, obviously you had seen that Tom. I'm guessing it was the same Tom that you guys had seen from the road. Could have been a different one. But you knew that there was a group of birds in there together. So to call the hen to you was just as good as calling the Tom to you. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same net result. For sure. Do you think it was the same bird that you seen from the road? I'm sure it probably was. I mean, it was only a few hundred yards away. There's a chance it could have been different birds, but given how close they likely. were and the fact that they were starting to break up, more than likely I would guess it was the same bird. Which was surprising to us a little bit given the fact that that hen had kind of spooked when we had tried to sneak up in there. Uh, so we were far enough away, I guess, and from a different location that she must have, you know, let her guard down or maybe she didn't perceive us as that big of a threat initially because we were on the road and she's used to getting spooked from stuff off the road 
or something. She didn't fly. Right. She just kind of, you know, tucked off and ran back into the woods. And like you said, you changed your location, so she may not associated you with what she's hearing. Yeah, we basically, I mean, we went around to where they would basically be in the rough location of regardless, you know, so it wasn't like we were trying to really call them off path. But when we did hear those birds, they were a lot deeper into the pines than we were set up. So I think, you know, if you kind of triangulate that location from where we saw them to where we first initially heard them, and then where we ended up calling them to, they did have to make basically like a 90 degree turn. Yeah, that you may have caused them to deviate off their general path a right. little bit, but you didn't make them do a 180 basically. Right. Yeah, it would have been impossible, I would imagine, to try and call them back to where we had spooked them from. Yeah, and I think that's that's a, a common mistake is, you know, they don't – people try not – they try to call birds more to the side or back behind them compared to trying to get in front of the birds more and, you know, the bird's natural way of movement is going in that direction. Try to let those birds somewhat come towards you but be able to call them slightly off of their path. Yeah. One of my friends that I used to work with has recently gotten into hunting. And last year was the first time he ever attempted to turkey hunt. And prior to that, he had only basically hunted deer one year with a, a rifle. So he's totally new. Um, and he's been asking me a lot of questions and he's really getting into it. And he had a farm that he was going to go up and hunt for turkeys. And I was basically like, you know, trying to tell him all this advice about getting on the roost and all this stuff. And it was small enough that the birds weren't necessarily roosting there. So he had to kind of figure some stuff out on his own. And he eventually heard some turkeys gobbling through the woods a couple times, knew a general direction where they were going and just walked up the woods a quarter mile, got onto basically like a logging road and sat up there, never made a peep. And, you know, 20 minutes later, those birds walked past and he shot his first time. Two hours of turkey hunting in his life all by himself. (laughs) Lucky. (laughs) Lucky, but smart too. Exactly. His calling wasn't good. So he definitely didn't try to like, you know, if he... If in my opinion, I would, I would guess if a guy is not good at calling, it may be a better idea to not try and feature your calling quite yet to to get a bird. If you can get one via, you know, woodsmanship more or less and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I mean, exactly. He, he knew his weak link, um, and he didn't try to, you know, he didn't try to overcome that weak link per se. He just used what he was what he knew he could do and that was cut the turkeys off and get ahead of them and you know that can be the the benefit of scouting is you know finding these field edges that these turkeys particularly like to strut in and if you're a weak caller you know you know set up on those field edges and you don't have to do as much calling or as frequent calling you know you know that bird's probably going to come through there yeah it may not be today maybe tomorrow or the day after but you're using your your scouting knowledge to outweigh your horrible calling skills Right. And it can be a huge advantage if you're in like a hilly type of terrain where those birds will commonly roost in the same locations and they'll commonly take the same paths moving from point A to point B. The same thing for an afternoon hunt, you know, knowing those birds roost in that same area, you know, you can kind of set up in those areas where you think the birds may go to to fly up if you're in a state that allows you to hunt that late in the afternoon. Right. Yeah. I know a few guys that have attempted to do that and then they don't exactly you know factor in how far those turkeys fly when they fly up 
and they'll be in the general location of the roost trees waiting for those turkeys to fly up, and all of a sudden they hear wing beats, and the turkeys are flying over their heads and roost right above them, and then they're out of luck. <laughs> Got to wait for yeah, it until it gets real late to sneak out of there. And that's the thing that is even more here, you know, the turkey that I set up on opening morning, that bird pitched probably – when he flew out of the roost tree, I'd guess he went probably 400 yards before he landed. He basically went out of the roost tree, flew across, across the road, landed closer to my camp than where I was at. So it's just, you know, it's part of it. Sometimes they'll fly straight up. Sometimes they may get on a, a ridge and fly straight across to a draw. And then sometimes they may just, like you said, pitch a draw and a half over basically. Yeah. Yeah, I've so. seen them fly – Long enough distances that I was surprised and even shocked that a turkey would fly that far. Yeah, some especially like you said, in some of them real steep areas, you know, it's easier to pitch across than it is to to try and fly straight up to a tree above you. You know, it's easier for that bird to just jump off that hill and fly, you know, sixty, eighty yards straight across to the other side of the hill. Oh yeah. Than to try to fly straight up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a place in Wisconsin where they do that exact that exact thing. They'll frequently fly across from one side of the river to the next, and a lot of times they'll fly straight into the roost trees. And if there's, you know, shallow enough terrain, sometimes they'll even fly down into the roost trees. You know, they'll be on the higher side of the river, they'll pitch off and land in the tops of trees on the other side where it's, you know, 80, 100 feet lower in elevation. Yeah, most of the birds and that draw that I typically like to hunt, that's the way they pitch to the low side in the morning but then they make their loop around and come off the high side. So like you said, they're pitching down probably 60 to 80 feet in elevation off the hill down to their roost trees. And then in the morning they go downhill typically, you know, this bird didn't do that, but that's part of it. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, ultimately when we talk about kind of the calling versus the luck versus the woodsmanship and I think ultimately it is a good idea, at least in my opinion, to try and get exposure to as many different styles as possible. Um, you know, have a setup where you, you know, hunt out of a blind, have a setup and you sit for 12 hours, have a setup where you call the hen to you, have a setup where, you know, you got to make some, some kind of a, a racket or fighting purrs or be able to pull a group of birds in that normally wouldn't come in, have a strategy where you go out there at 10 o'clock or noon and get a Tom fired up because he just lost his hens and eventually having exposure to all these different scenarios makes it a lot easier to kind of know what to do when you run into a new scenario. I agree. But to me, it makes it hard turkey hunting because you always have that. Should I stay or should I go when that bird is gobbling, you know, 200 yards away, you haven't heard the bird you've been sitting on for an hour. You know, you're like, should I stay and you know, hope the bird that I was calling to is coming in silently or should I jump up and beeline back behind me to try to get this bird that's actually hot right now. So that's the part that makes it hard, especially when you're trying to use the woodmanship to sit and outweight a bird basically or wait in an area where you think there's going to be a bird. Yeah, there's always going to be tough decisions. But I mean, versus like, you know, a lot of people, and there's nothing wrong with this by any means, especially in farm country, will basically take the strategy of sitting on a field edge with a decoy and calling. And that's, it's usually successful if you put enough time in. Um, but it can also be kind of handicapping in a sense, because if those birds aren't hitting the fields, 
you're just sitting there, you know, bored basically waiting for something to happen. And there's really no other, you know, tool that you have in your bag to be able to, to take out an employee. I think that's somewhere where like the, the digital age has really kind of overshadowed like with food plots, but the same thing with turkeys is hunting in fields or in openings, you know, because it makes for good videoing, but it might not always make for good hunting. Most people will be like, Oh, well this bird's gobbling, you know, I'm 80 yards away from the woods or hundred or hundred yards away from the opening. You know, let's go out to that opening and try to call the bird out to the opening when they may be better off to stay in the woods and hunt in the woods. If that bird's in the woods compared to if it's in the field. Yeah. I was, I think a lot of people tend to go towards the opening just because they see it a lot. I was listening to a recent discussion with Scott Ellis and he was saying a lot of times it makes it tough to get great footage for his show because he typically will hunt without a decoy and he'll typically, you know, hide the hen, so to speak, and make it so that those birds have to come around some kind of terrain feature. And once they do, they're dead. Um, yeah. and so there's very little footage and, you know, usually it's the footage of the bird popping right out the last second and then taking a bunch of BBs to that, um, versus, yeah, it's a, versus it's having a field edge hunt video. where, right. You got a bird coming in and flogging the decoy for 20 minutes before you finally decide to shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that whole, like I said, the digital age has really kind of changed that, you know, when I was a kid, I never remember hunting field edges. You know, we always hunted in the timber. And then, you know, the more and more you see everybody hunting field edges, food plots, whatever it might be, you know, I, I can't ever remember hunting a field edge as a kid. Right. Well, I mean, to a certain extent too, it's probably harder to spook birds when you're hunting the field edges, if you're set up in a blind all day. So you can hunt the same area several days in a row with very little impact versus if you're running a gun in the woods, you're a lot more likely to spook birds and maybe have them run off and now they're not on your property anymore. That's true. But, I mean, you can also look at, you know, getting into a, a blind around a field edge is a little more risky because the visibility is that much higher for the turkeys to be able to see you getting in or out of the blind, maybe. Yeah, as long as you're getting in there basically before and after roost for the most part. And I guess it yeah. is a little bit risky if you got your blind set up, you know, right tucked under the roost trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always hate those when you're like, yeah, I'm just going to, like, go in here and sit down and wait and start listening for birds gobble. And then you realize the bird is like right above you and you're like, crap. I've had hunts in, you know, the bluff country in Wisconsin where they would basically, uh, roost on the edge of a bluff. And I've walked in there, you know, having roosted them from several hundred yards away. And I know that they're in the general area and be walking in the pitch black without a headlamp, trying to get to like the top of a knob or something where I can set up in hearing the drumming over the top of my head as I'm walking into that spot, you know, and you're basically crawling as slow as you can to try and get in there without kicking those birds off the roost. And then you can usually see a, the birds right above you when you're, when it starts to get light and then that first gobble is right, you know, ear piercing. That's pretty fun way to hunt. I think when I was in college, I had this area that I, I really liked to hunt. I don't know if it was the same bird. It was like it was either two or three years. I hunted this same little bottom but the problem was there was like nine or ten small little creeks that kind of checkerboarded this i don't know let's probably say it's six eight hundred yards wide and half to three quarters of a mile long maybe 
um, open hardwood bottom, but there's just these small little maybe four foot wide creeks that had maybe two inches of water in them. So it really checkered board this wide open and the turkeys, for some reason, they just wouldn't cross it um, when you were calling to them. And so you had to kind of get yourself on the same square as the turkey to be able to call the turkeys in. And a lot of times you'd be like one creek away from being on the right square. <laughs> and that bird would just gobble and gobble and gobble, but never would come across. So then you'd shut up and try to like loop around to get on the same square as him. And I, I must have chased birds in that place forever. And I never killed a bird out of there, but it was some of the best turkey hunting ever. <laughs> Sounds like a blast. I don't know how many birds I've spooked back when I was first trying to learn how to turkey hunt where I would essentially get a bird gobbling at my calling and then he would stop gobbling and that would try and get closer to, to close the distance to try and get closer because it seemed like he, you know, either wasn't coming in or was starting to head the other way. It's like, oh, he's not making noise. I don't know where he is anymore. And then I get nervous and get up and try and get closer. Inevitably, more times than not, probably spooking the bird, him seeing me or something, than running off without me even ever knowing he was there. Yeah, I can remember one. We were in some hill country, kind of north central Arkansas, and the same thing happened. You know, bird got there and gobbled, and we're like, oh, he's further away. So then we jumped up, and literally we went like five steps, and this bird gobbled again because I guess he heard us walking in the leaves and gobbled. And we stopped. He was literally just like just over the crest of the ridge from us. Both of our both of us had our guns on our slings on our shoulders and we're like stopped in this half crouch mode and here comes this turkey strutting by at like 20 yards and it's just like oh crap here we are <laughs> stuck half standing and we thought this bird had went away from us and it's literally right there oh yeah i think i think turkey hunting can make for some interesting stories and and fun times with other people compared to deer hunting you know to me, running and gunning turkey hunting with somebody else is just so much more fun than going deer hunting with somebody else. Yeah, I mean, that was, when I hunted with Jared, that was the first time I've hunted with somebody else in a long time for turkeys. We had a blast. And this weekend, he's going to be going out again because he's the archery license. So I'm going to go out and film him. Yeah, it'll be good. I know he really wants to get one reaping. So we'll see. Get another one killed on video. Mm -hmm. That's the plan. They said there's a lot more birds there now. So they start, they start filtering into the area. Probably a lot less snow, too, and they've probably kind of split up. Oh, yeah. If they were grouped up. Yeah, so. all, all our snow. I'm pretty sure we're done with snow for the year. I'd be shocked if we got any more. <laughs> it's uh, just starting to be some spots of green grass, and the lakes are starting to open up around the edge of the lakes. There's still ice in the middle, but it won't be long. And we'll have green grass and trees starting to bud and open lakes spring will be here mm -hmm. yeah my next my next turkey season will be may 9th i believe in wisconsin may 9th yeah it's their fourth season and then i basically have tags for you know all the way through the almost the end of may between the wisconsin d e and f seasons which all last one week and for probably E and F, I'm sure they probably still have surplus. I could get more tags if I wanted to, but we'll see if, if I'm still that, that, uh, that's ambitious. the one thing that's, that's the one thing that's weird here is like I drew the early season tag. So it was from like, oh, I don't know, like the sixth through the 26th, maybe, um, 
So it ended last Thursday, I believe. But you can buy over-the-counter tags. They're unlimited. But if you drew a tag, an early season tag, you can't turn in your unfilled early season tag and buy a general over-the-counter tag. Yep. So my season's done, which is kind of odd to me, but you would, I would imagine you could turn it in and say, okay, I want to pay the 25 bucks and buy a general season tag. Be more money for the state? It would. We used to be the exact same way in Minnesota, and now they just recently changed it so that if you draw one of those first two seasons that is the lottery and you're unsuccessful, you have an opportunity again to try and fill that tag in the last week. Right, which makes sense. Yeah, but we have the archery option too, where if you buy an archery tag, it's good for the entire season. But if you put in for the lottery and you uh, are unsuccessful, you can't buy an archery license either. Which I think is strange too, especially when you look at Wisconsin, which is the total opposite setup. It's interesting. Yeah, so my my hunting's pretty much done until I figure out what I'll draw this fall. If I'll draw a deer or an elk or what I'll draw, I probably I won't draw an elk. But what all did you put in for? I, just mule deer and elk? Uh, yeah, um, and then desert bighorn sheep. But I have like negative percent chance of drawing that <laughs> one. Um, it's like second year of like twenty six, something like that. But there's always a chance. You never know. You have the but opportunity. Yeah, for, like, a, do they have a certain amount where it's just total random? So yeah, that's, percentage. Well, it's. It's kind of based off points, but you always have a chance, but it's a very, very, very low chance. Is it kind of like so? Even like if you have a point, it's like a raffle ticket in the drawing. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So I have like a zero point zero 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 one chance of drawing, <laughs> but hey, you never know. Uh, but I put in for deer, uh, so they do a dedicated hunter out here, which means that if you draw a dedicated hunter. You get, they give you two tags to use over a three year period. And in that three year period, you can use any legal method that's open. So you can hunt archery during archery season, muzzleloader during muzzleloader season, and then centerfire during firearm season. Um, but you can only kill two deer out of the three years that you're committed for that unit. And as part of that, you have to, you have to also participate in. I think it's 60 volunteer hours in order to get your tags. Really? Yeah. So you're guaranteed two tags out of three years, but you have to do volunteer work for the DWR, basically. Interesting. So I put in for that as well as archery deer in the same unit. And then I put in for an elk tag, which I won't draw because that unit takes like 16 points to draw just to build up points for that unit. Even as a resident? Um yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, um, probably not going to draw an elk. Might draw a deer. They kind of changed the point system last year. So, we'll kind of see how it all shakes out this year. And even if I don't, I can buy a an over the counter elk for the Wasatch Front. You have, uh, so. you guys have whitetails at some location in Utah, I'd imagine, right? Not in Utah, not a huntable population that I know of. I know Idaho and Montana do. Because Arizona has some, don't they? Uh, Further south. 
I know they got coos deer. Somebody was talking to me about like a multi-species opportunity in like December, January, where you can hunt them during the rut down there. That'd be. I'd think that'd be coos deer, um, and maybe javelina would be a multi-species opportunity. Because I was thinking that would be a decent, you know, when we were talking about in the past trying to fit so many rut hunts in the Midwest on various states it gets hard to do just from the standpoint that the hot time frame is like the same week out of all these various states so having a a state where the rut is a little bit later down south would be kind of a nice breakup yeah we were going to try to do the the late coos deer hunt this year but we just didn't get to it um probably gonna try to do it next year for sure they're this coming january this year whatever you want to call it um like jane late january um, coos deer in Arizona. So, and then I'm probably going to try to go to either Idaho or Montana to hunt whitetails just for kicks and giggles. Yeah, that'd be fun. And if that Arizona thing, that, that sounds intriguing from the standpoint of, you know, having something to do that time of year that isn't sitting outside when it's 30 below on a frozen lake. oh man yeah for me the whole arizona thing i'm interested just for the the squirrel grand slam (laughs) kind of want to go down there and scout around a little bit squirrel grand slam what's the species down there that you got to get oh man there's two there's either two or three species that are only found in arizona there's one species found in arizona and southern utah and then there's two species in like california Oregon and Washington, and then obviously the two species in the east. Right. Um, so yeah, that's my my plan is to try and embark on my start my squirrel slam this fall. I've been doing a lot of online scouting for North Dakota, which I have feel like is a waste of time because I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it or not this year. But I got some areas that well, I just I just really want to go. Missouri is still on the plate. Yep, so yep. I, I plan I gotta, on doing that. That's that's part of the reason why I don't know if North Dakota is going to happen. So I got a place for you to stay. I would like to do Missouri. Crash at the house and we can kill some deer. I, we will kill some deer. I would like to do Minnesota, Wisconsin, Missouri, and North Dakota, but something's going to give. I won't be able to do all of them. <laughs> so, yeah, we just got to kind of figure out what, what week we want to do Missouri and get that all planned out. Yeah, I mean, if it's during the rifle season or whatever, that would probably work out perfect. Because it's after, you know, the rut up here. We can do rifle. We can do bow. We can do whatever. Okay. Sounds good. We'll keep each other posted. Yep. So you got anything coming up video-wise or or DIY-wise? I do. Yeah, I got uh, a few reviews that I need to do, and I've been kind of chipping away at them. I got a bunch of reviews that are, like – you know, between 50 and 80% done, but I just still need, you know, various shots to get it completed. And I've been so busy lately. It's just been tough to, to get them all through, but like the, the wild edge steps and doing a review on those and doing a review on, um, a scope for my shotgun or doing a review on some new trail cameras that I got. Um, and that there's a couple other, th- I want to do a review on the Kestrel and I want to do a modification video on the Kestrel. I want to do a video on saddles versus tree stands. Yeah. There's a few things that are in flux. And then of course, anytime that I go turkey hunting, I hope to get a video off for that. 
So the next thing for you is, is what? Just more, more work in the outdoors or do you have anything fun planned for a trip coming up in the near future? Nothing really. Probably going to head to Yellowstone sometime, take that rooftop tent, um, and my Tacoma and go up to Yellowstone and yeah, how did that work out? That was, you just used that for the first time, right? Yeah. Used it turkey hunting. Um, it's great. It's really nice, surprisingly. Um, and, you know, the hardest part is trying to find somewhere semi-level. I bought some like leveling blocks to help level the truck, um, so that the bed is actually or the tent is actually level. I suppose. But it pops up really quick. Um, probably five minutes to get it put up. Um, real comfortable. It got down to probably mid twenties on Saturday night when I was out there. Um, I stayed warm. I was just in my quilt, my um, enlightened equipment quilt. Um, stayed warm. Didn't get no condensation. No issues with that whatsoever. So Nice. Yeah, it worked really well. I think it's going to work. Work great. Yeah, well, it's so much easier, too, than trying to set up like a tent or something on the side of the truck. It's like if you're going to be truck camping regardless. Yeah. Are you still able to, I guess, pack gear back there when you have that? camper setup yeah so it sits about six inches above the top of the bed okay so you still have the entire Um, bed as if you had like a tunnel cover yeah pretty much so i have pretty much the entire bed and the back seat the hardest thing is like if you forget something or you want to take the truck somewhere you got to fold it up to move it um but you know if you pack everything or you know this this is just where you're going to be it's not that big of a deal right that's a wrap for this week With the season structure, I doubt we'll have any more turkey stories before the next episode drops, so expect either another gear podcast or an interview. Which reminds me, if any of you listeners have specific questions on any of the gear that we do use, keep sending them. I answer a lot of the questions directly on social media, but at some point here, we'll likely collect a bunch of them and do a QA and a podcast. Also, shout out to our partner, Arrow Hunter. Here's the deal. If you even remotely are considering trying a saddle, it's really tough to go wrong with the Kestrel. In fact, if you're nervous about spending a lot of money on a system that you don't know if you'll like or not, here's something you can also try. Go to saddlehunter.com and read some of the threads and stickies there. But even more than that, you can check out the map link that they have posted. You can basically see the geographic locations of hundreds of saddle hunters across the country. And likely there's going to be a few that are close to you, so don't be afraid to send a, a message. You might be able to get a chance to play around with a saddle before spending your hard-earned money on it. And regarding the podcast network, Make sure you're following the Sportsman's Nation on all the relevant platforms, either the Whitetail theme podcast, the Western theme podcast, or both. A five-star rating on iTunes helps us all out. And Dane actually also just released a blog on the website. That can be found at sportsmansnation.com blog. So be sure to check it out as well. I think that's all we have for you guys this week, so stay tuned until the next episode.